1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to be reading just verses 19 through 28 to close off the story of Elkanah and his wife Hannah. Follow along with me as I read, if you will, please. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. She brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. The child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our title this morning is Devoted to the Plan of God. And I'd like to start again, like last week, with asking a question. Because Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel, and even as we learned last week about Penina and all of her children... Presenting to us this pattern of worship and of devotion, of fulfilling a vow. So I'd like us to start this morning by asking this question, what does devotion look like for Christian families? What does it look like for a family that claims Christ as Lord to live devoted to him? It's a hard question because I think that if we ask ourselves and if we kind of parents were to give ourselves a grade this morning we might feel that we do pretty poorly. We may look at how our children behave or what they know, what they understand, how they've grown, and we might say, boy, it seems to me that they should have been over here by now, but they're only over here. It may be that it's not about how the children are doing at all and just a realization of our own hearts to think that my heart isn't totally wrapped up in this sentence of living devoted as a Christian family. That there may be other things that make me think I do poorly in this area. It's also a hard question because some of us might feel disconnected from that question. We might be coming in here and saying, hey, the, my time of being devoted as a Christian family, that's done or that hasn't happened. But as we sit here together as God's church under the grace of Christ, we should find in that same grace that no family needs to think they are beyond the help of God and that no individual in the church needs to feel that they don't belong to a family. If we are in Christ, we've been brought into the church, the family of God. And in that, as we, especially, again, Sunday morning gatherings are very illustrative of this. That we are illustrating, even by bringing our children here and coming here together as a family, we're illustrating that we need help in doing this whole life devoted to Christ thing in the first place. The book of 1 Samuel, if you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, 
can be wrapped up in this idea of working into God's people a heart that is after God's own heart. So this question of family devotion or individual devotion or church-wide devotion to Christ is very, very much points to this very theme of having a heart after God's heart, having a devoted heart. Now, devotion is a very Christianese kind of word, so it might help for us to define that early on. Devotion is simply committing what was given by the Lord back to the Lord. So do you see that in Hannah's story in the passage we just read? A passage from last week set us up to understand that Hannah was one who was barren, who had no children, and who makes a vow to the Lord that if she would receive a son from him, that she would give him to the Lord's service all the days of his life. It's a very interesting story. And it does indeed call us to consider how we might live as a family driven by devotion to the plan of God. Because that's where Hannah ended up, where we left her last week. If you remember, we cut off the passage. We didn't read verse 19 last week on purpose. Because Hannah was able to find this peace in the plan of her sovereign king without actually getting what she asked for in prayer. If you would look back at verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. She's talking to Eli the priest. She's also, in, in one sense, explaining what she was looking for from the Lord. But then it says, then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This wasn't because she had some sort of blind, op foolish optimism that, well, the Lord's definitely going to give me a son, and I know that for sure. This was a peace that was resting in God's sovereign plan. And that whatever he was going to do was going to be right and that she could find satisfaction in it. It's very instructive for us because so often we don't think that we're going to find that peace until we found the thing that we think we need. Hannah shows us that we can find that in the presence of the Lord alone. And that then we can live in a matter of devotion as well. Hannah's story is, in one sense, a pattern, but not a particular that we should follow. We shouldn't expect that in every case where a baby is missing from a family, that the Lord is going to provide that every single time. But she does give us a pattern to follow in that idea of living devoted to God's plan and finding peace in that alone. Hannah started off chapter 1 feeling forgotten by God, but she found peace in his plan and was able to move forward trusting in that. And when the day finally comes in our passage today, where she has the son that the Lord that she asked of the Lord, she is not, only, not reluctantly in any way. We don't see any reluctance here at all. We might imagine that we'll talk about that in a little bit. But she seems very wholeheartedly committed to the idea of giving up her son for a lifetime of service to the Lord. And I don't think that's because she thinks, I'm doing the right thing here for what it looks like to be a good, devoted Christian family. It's a funny thing when we try to uh, translate this story into today's day and age and situation. I multiple times this past week thought about what if we had this kind of expectation as well? What if if you really wanted to live devoted to the Lord, you brought your child after he'd been weaned, you brought him to the church, you sat him in a pink chair and said, Pastor Nick, take care of him. Here's a couple bulls and some wine and some flour. You should be good. I think that a career change would be in my future very soon. There's a lot of cultural differences here. There's a lot of salvation history that happens in between our stories. But Hannah's story still shows us 
a posture of heart that is pleasing to the Lord and that has found peace and is living in devotion to him. And Elkanah's right along the same lines as well. If you look at verses 19 through 20, we can see this transition. After the prayer, after the vow has been made, they rose early in the morning, they worshiped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah. And then something really interesting happens here. It says, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So there's two things going on in Hannah's life. Elkanah knowing her, this is a euphemism for the intimacy of a husband and a wife. This wasn't an unusual thing. We know she's barren because in their intimacy, she's never born a child. But there's an interesting comparison to how Elkanah knew his wife, how he knew Hannah, but then the Lord remembered Hannah. That word remember is so important in the Old Testament especially because it's not used very often. It's used in the case of people like Abraham and the patriarchs. When, when, they were, when their wives gave birth, the Lord was remembering that he had made a promise, was remembering the vow of Hannah in this case. And that word remembering isn't just to say, hey, I'm going to throw something in, down into your life to make your life work out. He's actually drawing people into his plan by doing this act of remembering. It's really good. I mean, we, we read from a psalm last week where the psalmist says the same thing. Lord, remember me in your kindness. And it's a right thing for us to pray that as well. But it's good for us to know that if we indeed want to live as families driven by devotion to the plan of God, that we're going to be drawn up into that very plan if the Lord is indeed to remember us. And in Christ, he surely does. Well, anyway, we have Elkanah knowing Hannah. We have the Lord remembering Hannah. And then Samuel is born. Can you imagine the joy in Hannah's heart? Because already having a child is this wonderful, amazing gift from God. But on top of that, she knows the Lord has heard her vow and has responded in such a way. This is a happy moment for everyone in the household. Probably not Panina, but we're leaving her in the dust as the author does here too. Um, her rivalry with Hannah is, is in one sense ended or fulfilled because Hannah was able to let go of that, let go of the pressure of that, and live in the peace of her Savior. And Elkanah, it kind of goes along with this. So look at verse 21. This is the next section here. You might have a title in your Bible, Samuel given to the Lord. But in verse 21, the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. We're not told what Elkanah's vow is. It doesn't seem to be referring to Hannah's vow because it's separated in that way as identified by it being Elkanah's vow, but he apparently had made a vow, and that might have something to do with the fact that if you go back to verse 3, it says, now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. It may just be that that was his vow. He might have said at one point, Lord, I'm going to come up and worship you every year. I'm going to come to Shiloh where the tabernacle is, in, in a semi-permanent place, bring a sacrifice and worship you with my family. Elkanah continues his devotion with his family, and yet Hannah is going to stay behind. A big change happens in regards to the typical family vacation plans. Hannah's going to stay behind and not bring Samuel, and there's a very important reason for that. Because she could have said, I'll bring Samuel, and until he's weaned, then you know, I'll keep bringing him back. But she wasn't going to keep bringing him back. See, she was very committed to the plan and the vow that she had made to the Lord. And so she says, if you look down at verse 22, she says, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. This is so fascinating if you put it next to Elkanah's commitment. 
Elkanah's commitment, his vow, was to appear before the Lord once a year to offer sacrifice and then return home. Now Elkanah's son is going to appear before the Lord and remain there. In one sense, this is almost a, whatever Elkanah's vow was, this seems to be a connecting point that fulfills Elkanah's vow. Samuel is, in one sense, the fulfillment of whatever Elkanah had promised to the Lord through Hannah's vow as well. Elkanah's pilgrimage would be annual and it would be temporary, but Samuel's pilgrimage would be singular and it would be permanent. Now, this mention of weaning, this could take up to three to five years. This includes nursing and just basic childhood development, of course. But Elkanah's response in verse 23 is also important. He says, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. Well, this was a difficult passage because some translations will say, may the Lord establish your word. Most of our modern translations say what I just read, may the Lord establish his word. But there's a textual disagreement in there that we could spend some time working on, but I'm going to offer to you that it would be a great homework assignment and a great thing to look into later on. As for right now, Elkanah's words of the Lord establishing his word, be it Hannah's word or the Lord's word, really we're talking about the coming together of God's plan and the plan of a person, not to ultimately become Hannah's plan, but to become God's plan. And Hannah is submitting her plan. She is devoting her life plans to him. So be it the the fulfillment of Hannah's vow or the overarching plan of the Lord for creation and for redemption, they've become one and the same in this moment. That's ultimately what a family that's driven by devotion to the plan of God will do. Let their plan be taken up into the overarching redemptive plan of God. Now, you might say, boy, if I'm going to live as a, if my family's going to be driven by devotion to God's plan, does that mean I'm supposed to expect that I'm going to do something so radical and so biblical in this sense that my child's going to be devoted to temple worship? No, of course not, not necessarily. It's not necessarily true that us, that we today are going to find ourselves in such dramatic narratives as we see in Scripture. But certainly the drama and the challenges and the trials of our lives are going to be put into perspective rightly if our hearts are devoted to the plan of God. If we can see everything through his perspective, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice to know, oh, I know what the Lord's doing through this trial that I'm facing. We may not know exactly what the next step is, but we can have an assurance that if our plans are devoted to his plan, if our hearts are devoted, and if our family is driven by the plan of God. We can have assurance that whatever happens, whatever we face, whatever challenges may appear are going to be swept up into his plan and work together for his glory and for our good. That's what Hannah teaches us. That's what Elkanah teaches us. Establishing the word, the plan of redemption. The connection is important to make in verse 23 back to verse 19 where the Lord remembered. Remember that word? Remember the word remember is referring to this divine, redemptive plan of God. And Elkanah is recognizing this child is special. He's devoted to the Lord. And the Lord brought him into this world in response to a vow. So he has expectations for this child that he may not have had for his other children. Seems to be unique. And in like manner, we too are supposed to have different expectations and hopes and dreams for our children than the rest of the world would. For their own children 
for our children. In a lot of cases, that's probably our problem, is that the world does have dreams and hopes and plans and goals for your children. And they're not in line with God's plan and his purposes. So we need to watch out for that. In verses 24 through 29, the Lord has granted Samuel, and now Samuel is being lent to the Lord. It's a fantastic word that Hannah uses at the end of the passage. I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. It's funny because when you lend something, you know, you're kind of expecting to get it back. She's not expecting to get Samuel back. She's not expecting to really get anything back from Samuel's life. If you remember, the plight of being a barren woman in this time was that you're not contributing to society by bringing a son into the world who might join the military or who might help the country economically. And you're also not contributing to your own retirement plan. You're missing out on a lot of the benefits that the world expects children to bring into your life. Hannah's able to throw all those things away and say, I just want to be part of a family driven by devotion to God's plan and not my own. And that family that is a part of the divine plan is thus driven by the divine plan. It's going to be a kind of difficult thing for us to work out because we're often driven by so many other things, aren't we? We're driven by our necessities, our we got to make sure that we make our, our bills on time and that we, we fill our children's lives with things that are hopeful and good and positive and so many different things. But the bigger conflict is that devotion of the most precious things in our lives requires the most commitment, requires our greatest devotion. Hannah's, Hannah Elkanah's story, if it ends in chapter 1, and ends with just this nice, oh, look, we, we gave Samuel over to the Lord. Uh, it wouldn't really encapsulate what God's trying to do here. God is expressing through Hannah and Elkanah's story more than just what's going on with them. Remember, he remembered Hannah, and he's establishing his word in the lives of these people, bringing them up into his plan. So we have to ask the question, what is he saying to Israel in this moment? And it may be just, again, this overarching theme of, of having a heart that is after God's own heart. What Israel really needed was a fresh devotion to their heavenly king. That the lie that they were tempted to believe, that we're tempted to believe, is that devoting what is most precious to us will result in loss and not an incredible blessing or incredible gain. This is why we struggle to live wholeheartedly for the Lord week by week. I mean, this is my life. These are my plans. These are my hopes and dreams. These are the things that make me happy, and I'd like to chase after those things. If I'm told to chase after the Lord and what pleases Him, the temptation arises that, are those things going to line up? It, is the pleasure of the Lord going to also bring pleasure and joy and fulfillment into my own life? Then, if it comes down to asking to devote the most precious parts of my life, namely my children or my friends, my family, my time, whatever it might be, can I really trust that the Lord is going to bring gain into my life? Again, if you end the story with chapter one, you see Hannah joyfully giving up her son to the service of the Lord all the days of his life, but she's not gonna get to really be his mother anymore. She's not going to be the one who you know, helps him get ready for school in the morning and go through that whole process and see him grow up and see him succeed and see him fail and see him grow and change and all those things she's giving up. Where is this joy coming from? Well, before we get to that, we need to consider that what raising our child to live for Christ will actually cost them. In Matthew 16, 26, we have some famous words from Jesus 
He says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? Our our temptation, particularly as parents, is we want to give our kids the world. We we want them to, to have the best of what this life has to offer. And especially one big priority that we're, we all want to do in our, our child's lives is give them a better life than whatever we experienced. To give them better experiences, to, to have, have more stuff in their lives, more things to give them joy and fulfillment. And yet, if we are going to walk in devotion to God's plan and, and lead our families in that same way, there's stuff that we have to give up to find a greater gain. So consider what raising your child to live for Christ will cost them, but consider also the doubt and uncertainty that parents face in their greatest efforts to raise their children as devoted to the Lord. It's easy for us on Sunday morning to say, yeah, yeah, I want to be like Hannah. I want to be like Elkanah. I want to I be teaching the Bible to my kids. I want to be bringing them to church. I want to be giving them you know, little nuggets of truth in everyday life. That's really good, but... But don't we also have doubts and uncertainty as whether the truth that we're giving to our kids are actually getting through their ears into their hearts? How quickly we see our kids acting just like anybody else's kids in the world, <laughs> behaving like the rest of the world, and we're hoping, oh, but I, you know, I'm doing all this, I'm putting so much spiritual input into this life's kid, into this kid's life. Am I going to actually see some return on that? Is there going to be any effect from it? Consider the heartbreak that so many parents experience when their children turn from the Lord. Be it as they're older or younger at whatever point, when you kind of realize, oh my goodness, I think my child has left the idea of living devoted to Christ completely behind. It's these kinds of things that perhaps make us backpedal a little bit and indeed say, maybe I shouldn't be devoting what is most precious to me because it's just going to result in loss. I'm just going to end up heartbroken if these things don't work out the way that I expect them to. And so doubt and heartbreak begin to threaten when we strive to be driven by devotion to God's plan. Heartbreak and doubt. Uncertainty. Imagine Hannah's desire that she had before. Imagine where she was as this barren woman in Israel feeling as though she is missing out and is forgotten by God. Imagine that the Lord perhaps might have granted a child to her before all of this that happened in chapter one and how things might have turned out. She may have gotten what she wanted, but not actually have been led to what her soul truly needed. Because if, our answer, if we are, had all of our prayers answered in the simple temporal fashion of, Lord, give me this one thing so that I can find peace, we're getting it backwards. The Lord wants to say, well, I'm going to give you peace whether you have that thing or not. That's what I want to offer to you. Because Hannah could very well have a son, but what's going to happen next? She's going to look back at Panina and go, oh my goodness, she has so many more children than me. I'm not going to be satisfied until I have more children than Panina does or, or until my children are holier than Panina's children or, or they're more successful or whatever it might be. She instead found peace in God's sovereign plan. Well, for us, I think this is very relatable. Uh, So often our prayers for our children revolve around the three S's, safety, strength, and success. The things that we so often want more than anything else for our children. And I think that these prayer requests often overshadow our hopes to devote our children to the Lord. 
that they seem so often so much more pertinent, right? Like, like safety and, and health and, and making sure that they're, they're learning and growing and reading. In recent weeks, I've started to help my six-year-old with her homeschooling. And boy, that's tough. I mean, I kind of went into it thinking like, I've done this teacher thing before. I feel like I did pretty all right at it. But when it's your own kid, suddenly it's different. And, and I started to feel really bad. I started to think, like, maybe I didn't care about all those other kids that I taught in middle school because, you know, they'd fail and be like, oh, well, that was what you did. But, you know, my kid fails, and I go, no, you got to figure out how to draw the straight line from that dot to the next dot. And, and, and so many things that I think, boy, you should have this by now. Why is it taking you so long to get this? Where is your success? Well, strength and health is also a big deal, too. My goodness, the, the most desperate times I've experienced in prayer, I'm ashamed to say I've revolved primarily around times where the health of my child have been severely threatened. You know, waking up in the middle of the night and the kid can't breathe and they're coughing their heads off. And my goodness, how, how we run to prayer in desperation. My child's safety and strength and success are threatened. Lord, fix it. Hannah, I imagine, for perhaps three to five years was tempted with these very same things that we are. That she may very well have thought, you know, maybe this whole lifetime devotion thing to the Lord isn't what I should have said. Maybe what I should have done is what other people do with a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow is only supposed to be temporary. Maybe I could amend this vow a little bit here. Do I have to give him up for my, his entire life? really for her entire life as well? Can I truly lend him to the Lord? Do I really need to go? Do I need to fulfill what I said to the Lord? Maybe none of this is really hitting. Maybe there's something else entirely different in your heart. Some part of your life that's just not devoted to the Lord. Yeah, you might say, boy, if, if you put my life into a pie chart, I can show you 75% of this stuff is devoted to the Lord. I'm devoted to the way the Lord does finances, Right? Boy, that's an obvious one. I'd love to have the benefit of his wisdom in my finances. I'm devoted in the way the, the Lord says parenting. Boy, uh, spare the rod and spoil the child. I can get on that. That sounds great. Maybe there's other parts of our lives that I'm not really interested in devoting that to the Lord. Why is that? It's because that part of our life is precious. And it's because we believe a lie that devoting what is most precious to us will result in loss and not an incredible gain, as Hannah's life shows us. Maybe this something else that's part of our lives just simply remains undevoted for that very reason. And it may be revealing a commitment not to the plan of God, but to the plan of me. That ultimately, I'm not about God's redemptive plan. Yeah, I call out for God to remember me, but I don't want that remember me in the biblical sense. I don't want to be brought up into God's plan. I'm trying to bring God down into mine. And I spent a lot of time in Proverbs already this year, and I looked at Proverbs 132 this past week. It says, the complacency of fools destroys him. And I wonder what complacency means, because I... A lot of times I look at these words and I'm like, I know what that is, right? I don't know, maybe I don't. But in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for this word translated to complacency means quietness, ease, and this especially hit me, careless security. Careless security. Immediately made me think of so many of my prayers, not only for my children, but for myself. Safety, 
security, strength, success. Give me those kinds of things. And I'd like to rest in that kind of careless security that the Lord's going to just grant whatever I want, that he's going to be my genie, he's going to be my Santa Claus, he's going to make all my dreams come true, and my plan will come to perfect fruition in the end. Then I thought about Eli, because I was thinking about this word fool, and I was looking for a fool in this passage, and it didn't take long. And unfortunately, you find the pastor is the fool in this story, right? He's a priest, he's not a pastor like in today's sense, but really, I, I found a lot in common with this guy. Hopefully not the bad things, but just the position of life, this idea of spiritual leadership and of being, you know, part of what the Lord's doing in the lives of his people and all those things. But Eli was a fool. We already have it made clear earlier on in chapter one, or sorry, it comes later in chapter two that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were losers. They were they were the worst kind of priests. They were self-absorbed. They were more focused on satisfying their bellies than serving God's people. And Eli doesn't seem to be one who's affected by this at all because he's got some of the same problems as well as we'll see in the next chapters. The fool who's building his or her life on their own plans is building his or her life on their own works as well. And when it comes to how does your plan jive with God's plan, all that we have to rest on then is, well, you know, it, it may be very self-centered, but it also includes some pretty good things. You know, I find some fulfillment in serving some people. I find some fulfillment in, in helping my neighbor and shoveling their driveway if it ever snows in Northwest Ohio. I don't know if it does. It sure doesn't seem like it. I'm not salty about it. But my plan can very quickly and very easily be justified if I look at all the good things that I'm doing. Or at bare minimum, I'm just not hurting anybody. I just want to watch, watch out for myself. But the fool is the one who builds his life on works and it has led to destruction, Proverbs 32 says. The complacency of fools destroys them. And when it comes to parenting, I read this from J.C. Ryle this morning. If you do not take trouble with children while they're young, they will give you trouble when they're old. Choose which you prefer. I think it's the fool that says, you know what, I think God's got this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the raising of my children to him in the spiritual sense. Just see what he does. But I'm going to just take care of these other things. I'm going to make sure that they're really impressive children in this world. That, that I can kind of brag on them a little bit, really like to fill my mantle up with some trophies, that kind of thing. Eli was able to just rest in the fact, of, oh, my children are, yeah, they're, they're losers, but I mean, they're still priests. That's, that's pretty important, right? They may be completely godless, self-absorbed priests, but they are priests, aren't they? Doesn't that count for something? It's Eli's problem and, and our challenge in this world that we live in is that if we don't take an active role in discipling and bringing our kids up in devotion to God's plan, that we're leaving them up to pagan influences. We're leaving them up to worldly influences. And we need a savior. We need someone to come in and actually not only redirect us, but to atone for our failings in not only parenting, but in all of life. See, Eli was devoted to his own foolish plan. But then we see Elkanah in verse 23, who shows us where our devotion must truly lie in the establishment of God's word. That is in the devotion to God's plan. 
and being remembered by God and being swept up into his plan, not the other way around. And so I would ask you this morning, has the Lord done that in your life? Has he swept you up into his plan? Or are you locked into your own plan? Are you building your own life on your own ideas and goals and purposes? Be it in raising children or not, whatever it may be. Look at verses 26 through 28, if you would. When Hannah sees Eli, again, not the best spiritual leader in the book, but she still says, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Hannah does not return to the house of the Lord with her head hanging low. All right, I got to essentially pay the devil his due. He doesn't have that, she doesn't have that attitude towards the Lord at all because her heart's been changed because God's word and God's plan have so gripped her, bless you, that really nothing else matters in comparison. Hannah's joy is rooted in the word and plan of the Lord established. Hannah and Elkanah are parents that offer up a son and devote him to the plan of God for life. And amazingly, what we know as we sit here today is that God has offered up his only son and devoted him to the plan of God for death. Yes, for life as well. Christ lived a perfect life in our place. He lived wholly devoted to the Lord and in a way that none of us could ever imagine doing because of our problem of sin. But the contrast with Samuel and Jesus is that Samuel was devoted for the whole of his life, but Christ was devoted for the purpose of his death to the plan of God. See, in Christ, God has done what we could not do as parents, what we couldn't do on our own behalf or on behalf of our children, so that we can freely trust him with our own lives and freely trust him with the lives of our children as well. This beginning question that we asked What does it look like to live truly devoted as as devoted Christian families to the Lord? Well, it first looks like stopping and returning to the perfect family that was devoted to the Lord, that being God, our Heavenly Father, and His Son, Jesus. Jesus then becoming the ultimate remembering of the Lord at the cross, wherein He was completely devoted to the plan of God to absorb the wrath of God, His anger against your sin, and to make atonement for us, to bring us back into the pleasure of God, to the holiness and goodness that he has for us. Christ accomplished what Samuel couldn't, what Saul couldn't, what David couldn't, the price of devotion to the plan of ourselves. It will cost us if our plans are about ourselves because it costs Christ at the cross. He paid it, paid the entire cost so that we could be restored to God's plan and not our own. This is what he accomplished. And then what he grants is the thing that 1 Samuel calls us to have, a heart after God's own heart, completely devoted, committing what was given by the Lord back to the Lord in full, not saying, you know, Lord, I'll give you most of it back and I'll take a little bit off the top for myself. I'm gonna leave this part of the pie for me. Centuries later, after this passage, as we've read already from Acts chapter 16, Paul would tell this Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
And then again, as we read, it says, they spoke the word to him and to all who were in his house. It is the word of Christ spoken that is the effect of the word of God established. The word of Christ, the testimony of what he's done and why we need to hear it day after day, week after week, to be reminded that, yeah, I don't live a perfectly good Christ-centered family devotional type life. I don't live that in an individual level either. But Christ has lived it on my behalf. And Christ has remembered me in my sin and weakness and brought me eternal life through his atoning work at the cross. Much to be thankful for. Much to remember each moment that we spend in reflecting on what Christ has done for us. And it is that thankfulness that we see in Hannah's exhortation, his her um, exclamation is what I want to say in the end of our passage today. Hannah shows us a response of one who holds God to nothing he hasn't given, but still holds herself to all she has devoted to God and his divine plan. And she doesn't do it with her head hanging low. She doesn't do it out of regret. And I wish I wouldn't have said that thing. Why can't I keep what I wanted? Because her heart has been so radically transformed by the divine plan. So also ought ours be in hearing of Christ. What has the Lord done to stir thankfulness in your heart? Started at the cross, what more has he done that you can point to and say, boy, I'm so thankful for this moment, for that moment, for this thing that he did. And I want to devote his saving work that he's done in me back up to him. See, we're not going to hold our vows as parents or believers without a view to the salvation plan of God in his word. And trust that it's being revealed by his spirit even now as we're talking about it. We won't pursue our roles in the divine plan if we don't deal with our temptations and idols, though, either. So in thankfulness, we need to pursue our individual role, our family role, our corporate church role in God's divine plan. Because this is what he's calling us into. This is what he's equipping and preparing and forming us for. The Lord is forming the heart of Christ in the heart of each one of his people. And so I want to offer you three ways that we're equipped to pursue our role in the divine plan. So first of all, the grace of the Lord establishes thankfulness in our hearts and joy in our actions. If we can move to the next slide. Sorry, Brian, I forgot to say that. Yeah, I know this is probably hard to read. I apologize. Three ways that we're equipped to pursue our role in the divine plan. The grace of the Lord brings thankfulness in our hearts. This is what we see in Hannah in the end of the story. She's living... Uh, full-on thankfulness in this moment. It's bubbling up in joy and her offering and her, her fulfilling her vow is no longer a chore. It's worship. Secondly, the goodness of the Lord leads us away from our worldly pursuits and toward his perfect plan. All the hopes of lining our fireplaces with trophies or being able to brag on our kids or brag on our own achievements, the goodness of the Lord leads us away from that kind of priority so that we can rest in what he's done, rest in his perfect plan, and trust him for it, leading us away from those worldly pursuits, knowing that we have so much to gain in him, that in devoting our lives, devoting our children's lives to him, we have so much to gain. There, might, there will be loss. We have to lose all. He has to shave off all the worldly desires in our hearts, but it's his goodness that does that. And then lastly, the faithfulness of the Lord stirs us to worship with our whole lives. Out of that kind of worship, we're called to devote even the most precious things to his plan. 
He's equipped us to walk faithfully because of his faithfulness. And so we can encourage each other on the way. If you notice at the beginning of our passage this morning in verse 19, they rose early in the morning and worshiped and then go all the way down to verse 28. After Samuel was given over to the Lord, lent to the Lord, as Hannah says, he worshiped the Lord there as well. All of life is to be encompassed in worship. From beginning to end, our life in Christ is granted, is, is given to him, is lent to him because it has been granted to us. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to pause and pray and then we're going to sing that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you this morning for the revealing of your plan through Christ into our hearts so that our hearts might be shaped after your own. Lord, we thank you that in this hard work of parenting, there isn't 10 rules to follow to make sure we get it perfectly. It starts with this basic principle of devoting our entire family, our entire lives to you, trusting you with that devotion. Lord, I pray for moms and dads, for aunts and uncles, grandmas and grandpas in our congregation this morning that we gathered to worship. You would reveal to our hearts our need to trust you with the children in our lives, even if we're not blood-related to them, Lord. Just to know that this is something that you are working on. You're working in and through young hearts and minds to draw them to yourself, just as you're working through us, just as you're working to build a devotion in our hearts towards your plans as we tear down our own. May we find peace, satisfaction, joy, and fulfillment in what you have for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.